Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Marco, welcome back to 10% True. Thanks for coming back. Appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, great to be back, Steve. Thanks for uh, having me again. So, so we we spent uh, an hour and 45 minutes or so talking about <laughs> your F-111 time last time around, and I'll put a link in the uh, description and um, one of those little links on the screen now. So if anybody's tuning in and they haven't watched that, go and watch that first and then come back to this one. Um, but I think it'd be fair to say then, the uh, next port of call for our conversation is to find out what you did after the F-111. Yeah, well, uh, uh, immediately after, uh, so this has been um, late 1992, mid-1992 to late 1992, the, uh, they'd announced that Upper Hayford was closing, and uh, so I didn't want to be there to see it end. Uh, we talked a little bit last time about the rivalries in the different squadrons, and, and so uh, we knew that uh, basically as things shut down, you might end up going to one of the other squadrons, and as a, as a 79th Tiger, you know, that wasn't that wasn't going to happen if we could help it. So so I went into my boss at the time and uh, to the squadron commander and said, hey, you know, I'm looking for uh, another opportunity. Um, and so uh, looking at, you know, the Strike Eagle RTU was chock-a-block because of the transitions that were going on. And so I said, hey, how about to an AT-38 so I can kind of go hang out for a little while? Um, most of the folks who would watch this will know a little bit about an alpha tour, uh, and so you kind of needed one of those as a fighter pilot to uh, at some point. And so Alpha was uh, so it was an ALO lift, which was the AT-38, AETC, or a Factor. Uh, so you needed kind of one of those. So it's like, well, if I get it out of the way now, then I'll get back into uh, into a fighter after that. So I asked him if, if I could do that. He said, uh, I don't see why not. You know, we're we're going to be ramping down. Uh, so I left in December of '92 and went to uh, Holloman. Uh, to become an AT-38 instructor. Uh, so I did that for several years. Uh, well, I actually had closed another place down. Holloman ended up closing uh, about 11 months after uh, or the AT-38 program, not the base, but the AT-38 program uh, closed down at Holloman and relocated um, in 93. And so uh, October of 1993, I ended up moving with the AT-38 to Shepard Air Force Base. And uh, so to set up a program there. So it was a brand new AT-38 uh, operation, which uh, was starting up then. So kind of that backdrop of that that's, that's weird was the Air Force was changing while I was in Europe and they, uh, they'd they gotten rid of uh, TAC and SAC and combined that into a ACC, Air Combat Command, and then uh, moved all of the training, even fighter 
training into uh, Training Command, which they re- renamed Air Education and Training Command. Uh, so all the fighter uh, RTUs and everything were now uh, Training Command units. Um, so going into the AT-38, uh, at Holloman was a TAP squadron. And then when we moved uh, with that whole change, uh, we became an, a flying training squadron, even though we we're a fighter squadron still. Um, but we were uh, the. Uh, I moved over to Shepherd, and we became the 88th Flying Training Squadron, and uh, did AT-38 operations there, uh, which was a great location because of Injept. Uh, so all the guys that were there were going fighters. The, what part of the transition for that program was moving it to the AETC bases where the T-38s were uh, was supposed to limit uh, the TDYs for the students too, so they could just walk across the uh, hall and go to the AT-38 unit. Uh, that was co-located at their pilot training base. Uh, but that really didn't work out <laughs> because they never put one advanced Air Force Base. Uh, and so it, the kids were still going to TUI, so we'd still get some folks from other bases. Um, but anyway, we uh, were doing AT-38s, and I did that until um, 95. So. so so just going right back to the beginning of that then. So LIFT is uh, leading fighter training. Um, yep. uh, which is nowadays called IFF, Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals. Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals, yep. And that changed while I was there. Uh, that was kind of the one of the changes for uh, AETC was uh, to get to make the name change. So, yeah, IFF was a, a name change, very little change in the way it worked, almost none. What about for you then? So, so I've got sort of two questions, really. Um, what is the AT-38? And um, as an F-111 guy then, uh, coming to to lift, what, what did you have to learn or relearn? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the AT-38 is a uh, modified basic T-38, so same two-seat, same basic airframe. It had a few uh, modifications, including a, a gun sight. Um, so you had a, a piece of glass up there with a camera so you could record uh, your your heads-up display. Uh, again, it didn't have any information except a uh, reticle, bomb reticle, and you could change the mills so you could adjust the picker uh, for mills, but not left and right, no lead computing, just a, just a hard sight. And then it had a centerline pylon was capable of carrying a, a Su-20 bomb rack uh, or a uh, actually a gun pod, a 7.62-millimeter uh, five-barrel Gatling gun pod, Su-11. Uh, and so... We actually flew those at Holloman. Uh, when we moved to ATC, strafe was kind of over, so we didn't do it anymore. But uh, at Holloman, we still strafed, uh, which was really fun. Uh, and then uh, you could put a bigger travel pod on it than a regular T30. You could put a you know, full-up size travel pod. I always wondered why they didn't plumb it for gas, but they didn't, so you couldn't put a fuel tank on it. But uh, other than that, it could carry pretty much anything. It was a normal mount uh, rack. So, so that was the big differences. The other difference, it had a little bit of a, a strength and empennage for, uh, they knew we would over G them a lot, which we did. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, other than that, the engines were the same. Uh, the rest of it was the same, but it was a uh, painted camouflage blue um, to be a little more tactical, I guess. Uh, and uh, the, the good thing about it is for a kid coming out of pilot training, uh, and the, really the reason for it was get a kid coming out of pilot training and rather than send him straight to an F-16 or an F-15, uh, you give him an airplane that he's familiar with flying and then teach him how to fly it a lot differently and, uh, and work the tactics. So they would learn basic uh, tactical formation much 
more than they did in pilot training and uh, also uh, BFM and surf stack uh, and then some low level tactics too. Uh, so basically you got all the standard fighter pilot building blocks in the AT-38 uh, that prepares you to go to RTU and then do it in a jet that costs a lot more money. Did, did you focus then because you were, um, you'd come from that surface attack side of things. Did you focus on mm-hmm. that, that part of the syllabus? No, matter of fact, uh, it was interesting. So we had pilots, obviously, from all the different MWSs uh, coming in as instructors. Um, and so you'd, we'd all go through the same thing. But uh, for me, because I was a 11 guy, I didn't really have any BFM except for when I was a student in the AT-38. It was my last BFM flight. Uh, I had a couple extra rides to get ready uh, to you know, get more proficient. So you had a little bit of a proficiency phase in the iPub program uh, to get qualified in the front seat and all the missions, and then you'd uh, move to the back seat to start teaching it. Um, and so because I was a search tech guy in general, I really didn't do a whole lot of that in the syllabus. I think I got two or three rides because they're like, well, you obviously know how to do that. Um, and it was real heavy BFM. Uh, so offensive, defensive, and high aspect BFM. We did a little DA, uh, DC BFM, uh, you know, dissimilar with uh, F4s that were there at Holloman and then F16s or F15s if they were around. Uh, so we'd get a little bit of that, but mostly just uh, similar in the AT-38 against AT-38. Uh, but, but yeah, so it concentrated on that. And then as you uh, started teaching the syllabus, the syllabus was really actually kind of heavy BFM. Uh, so I probably taught more BFM than service attack or low level over the course of my uh, AT-38 time, um, which is uh, – why I guess when I when I ended up getting the F-15C, I thought, well, I should be able to know how to do that, and that turned out to be a little different than I expected. Before we get to that, because <laughs> yeah. uh, that's that's going to be an exciting conversation for me because I'm a bit sad. Um, not not so much for you, um, but before, <laughs> before we get to that, so I did I, I interviewed Hacker Haskin, who was he's an ex um, uh, F-15E guy, was an instructor at IFF, and you know, he talks a lot about how. Uh, IFF wasn't really about you know taking somebody and getting them ready to go and fly the Eagle or the Viper as a as a BFM machine. It was about right. you know sort of culture, instilling mm-hmm. pra- practices. You know what is it like to be a, what what should you be as a wingman? Mm-hmm. You know uh, the the pilot training pipeline is about sort of the administrative side of thing, formation, flying, flying in the weather, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, what what uh, you know outside of the cockpit? Then what were you doing to sort of instill that sort of fighter pilot mentality into your students? Well, well, and he's exactly right. That that was a big part of it, uh, making sure you could turn a pedestrian, or actually not pedestrian, they knew how to fly, but uh, but a, a training command guy into a fighter pilot. So, so it was the uh, epitome of the fighter pilot location. So, you know, you were in the bar every Friday night. You pushed it up with the uh, students. You made sure they showed up and uh, learned learned that side of it. Uh, I learned how to, you know, my 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 potty mouth was probably ten times worse when I was an AT thirty instructor than any other time in my career. Um, back then, I also uh, I chewed Copenhagen pretty regularly, and uh, and that was something that you know you did in the briefing room and you know we had spittoons in the briefing room so this is chewing tobacco uh, oh yeah yeah chewing okay. tobacco. so uh so yeah that that part of it that uh, hard hard charging lifestyle was was a big piece of iff and and lift um uh and then it, it went straight into the cockpit too i remember you know almost every first sortie and i in uh in the at-38 uh the kid jumps in the front seat and starts running the checklist 
And, you know, all the IPs, we would just sit there and not say anything. So there was all these challenge and response items in the uh, T38 checklist. You know, hey, I'm all strapped in. How about you? And we wouldn't say anything. And then they'd, they'd go, uh, sir, did you hear me? And we wouldn't say anything. Finally, you'd go like, shut up. And they, they'd say, did you hear me? I go, did you just hear me say shut up? And they're like, yeah. And we go, okay, yeah, I heard you. I go, don't talk to me. This is your training to be a single seat fighter pilot. Nobody's going to talk to you. Get your crap done. Uh, when you're done, let's go. So, so there was a lot of that in the uh, transition from from a training guy to a, to a fighter guy, uh, and it was all really to develop that culture, that killer instinct. Uh, interestingly, we could talk about it just a little bit though. Is is the uh, women came into uh, the fighters when I was at Holloman, so uh, we had the first female fighter pilots show up uh, at Holloman and in the se- I was in the seventh fighter squadron there. And, uh, and so that was one thing that we were trying to figure out. How do we do, how do we continue to do that with uh, women or can we do it the same way? Uh, and, and largely we did. Uh, I was really kind of proud of the air force for not uh, totally turning that over. Um, uh, so we, we basically, you know, basically they said, Hey, clear the porn out of the briefing rooms. And other than that, you know, don't change anything. How, how did uh, the, the women respond then? Um, uh, pretty good, actually. I mean, the, the first one was that uh, Jeannie Flynn, uh, which, you know, she was uh, pretty famous, I guess, at the time. Uh, and She went on to be 52, didn't she? Um, no, she went she, to the Strike Eagle. Oh, yeah. She, oh, yes, she was a general. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so what? Here, here's, here's what I liked about her is, you know, she was a second lieutenant. She could have really kind of taken the limelight and tried to, to really play it up. And she didn't, uh, she, she did her interview cause the air force made her. And then she said, Hey, I'd really like to be left alone so I can do my training. Uh, and she flew a decent jet. So, uh, she was good. We had a few other ones coming through at the time. Uh, what the air force had done was they, they picked Jeannie cause she was a, a regular pipeline person, uh, straight out of pilot training. And then they went back and said, well, you know, for the last couple of years, there's, there's women who would have got a fighter if they would have been allowed to, so they pulled them back into training. And so some of them were in other MWSs, you know, uh, uh, heavies or they were vapes uh, and they brought them in. So they, they had experience. And, uh, and most of those were, you know, again, they had a lot of flying uh, on them. So they were, they did fine. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, I mean, <laughs> the truth was a woman could fly the airplane. That wasn't really a problem. But, uh, but some of the cultural parts were uh, a little different. And, and one of the things I starkly remember is, is, debriefing uh, in a d- defensive BFM sortie with a female and she was kind of laughing about getting killed. You know, I'm showing that her showing her the film and I'm like, here you are getting tracked. And she kind of laughed and, and I yelled at her and said, you know, this isn't funny. You're freaking dead. Uh, and, and she, she, she uh, kind of looked back for a second, but with the guys, I guess, you know, playing army when you're a kid and all that kind of stuff. When you, when you said, Hey, you're dead, they, they kind of took it seriously. And uh, initially we kind of had to, help the women understand it was serious and, and it wasn't play. Uh, and, and, and that wasn't, you know, a general rule, but it was, you know, onesie twosies that I saw. Um, but, but again, they, they were great. They did the job. They, uh, they flew the jet. They uh, went to the squadrons in there and, been a good asset to, uh, to everywhere they've gone as far as I know. We, we talked, um, we're going off on a, on a tangent, although I, I suppose technically I have an agenda. So other than talk about the eagle, so nothing, nothing is a tangent. Um, <laughs> relevant. Um, but we, we talked a little bit before we hit record about culture. Um, uh-huh. 
what uh, what's your observation then of the direction that the vector that the Air Force's culture was taking as as you progressed your way through the Air Force and eventually separated? Yeah. Um, while I was still in the jet, I think it was pretty intact. Uh, is I, I didn't see. I didn't see those kind of things that are kind of going on now until after I was kind of out as a, as a, you know, on the staff as a Colonel. Um, and then I was not, you know, in the fighter, in the fighter squadrons, but I had friends that still were, I had a good buddy who was the opso of the uh, 10, 10 heads at uh, Langley. And uh, he would, he would just gripe all the time because they'd have a party or something. And, and most of the young guys wouldn't show up and they go, Hey, where were you? And they're like, oh, I had to do something with my wife. You know, and you're like, what you know that that's not how it works uh or they wouldn't be around you know on friday night at roll call or they wouldn't uh they wouldn't be around after fly and they just leave it was kind of switching to a job more than a lifestyle uh so so that uh, again was something that i tangentially watched over uh other people's experience but but while i was still in the jet uh you know through my equal time it never ended and and it could have been Partially that, you know, when I was at Mountain Home, it was still the early 90s, mid 90s. Uh, and when I was at Kadena, we were overseas. Uh, so I think overseas, it took a lot longer for that to change. Uh, but at the at the stateside units um, in the 2000s is when I was hearing those kind of stories about culture change. And, and just, you know, uh, my buddy would go, yeah, we got the new new age fighter pilots. They're just not the same. <laughs> It's. I mean, it is. It is an interesting question, isn't it? One uh, sort of my friends um, described it as the Air Force wanting warrior monks. You know, they want, to, want people who can go out and kill other people, but they don't then want those people to pass mm-hmm. in, use use profanity or, you know, do, do any of the stuff that uh, well, it, pilots maybe used to. But yeah, and then if, I think I think the killer was less what the Air Force was doing, and really it was political correctness. Um, I wrote a paper when I was at SOS as a captain. Uh, squadron officer school about how the PC culture was going to make it so we couldn't actually kill anybody, uh, which that would be a problem <laughs> when your job is to kill people and break things, but you're not allowed to do it. Uh, then we don't need it anymore. Um, so I think it was, it was the PC culture coming into the military. And of course, you know, that's still ongoing. Uh, why, why does it matter? I mean, what if, you know, let's say if you, if you take the extreme, which is, you know, the officers club strippers at the bar you know that's the yeah. old sort of adage of you know things like yeah. in the post post vietnam era fighter pilot world that's what happened um why is that important why should that be preserved or or things like that well i mean i don't know they necessarily need to keep that part um i mean that was a i don't know that the original fighter pilots you know if you go back to uh to looking at uh rickenbacker and the guys i don't know that they had that uh but they were push it up guys. They, uh, they drank, they smoked, they, uh, probably used foul language. Uh, but the, the mentality of, of being a warrior, uh, isn't PC, you know? And, and so I think, I think the, the womanizing part, and, you know, we saw that it with, uh, tail hook, the, the big problems with tail hook, you know, that, that may have been a cyclic or a, a time period, uh, that maybe wasn't as bright, for for everybody as it could have been uh but the uh, but you don't have to have that to to have a killer instinct or a killer attitude um you know i think look at rock hudson or something like that and you could go okay well you can be tough and and uh still have like a wife you don't have to uh you know go to a strip club every day um matter of fact it's kind of funny i had a i had a rule with my wife that i wouldn't go to strip clubs 
uh, unless I asked for permission. Because like if I, if it was we were TDY and they're like, hey, we're going to the strip club. I go hold on, I got to call my wife. Uh, and I would call her and say, hey, Lisa, the guys are going to the strip club. Is that cool with you tonight? And she's like, yeah, don't stay there very long. Uh, but, uh, but I think that, you know, that I'm still married, I've been married for 32 years. So that's probably, uh, part of it. That is, I mean, that is a really good, um, sort of, uh, a question, isn't it around then yeah. what it's like for the, the spouse and the family of, um, of somebody serving in that environment. Uh, yeah. You know, there, there, there was, I think, uh, a Navy study, which looked at divorce rates and they, um, they looked at, the psychology behind the relationship and i think they they came away and said that you know one of the things about uh females is that they you know they need to get their emotions they, they like to share their emotions and mm. they need to say something like fifteen thousand words a day or something like that <laughs> yeah. and, and so one of the things about fighter pilots is they don't want to talk about emotions and that kind of thing right. so you, so he comes home from work and she wants to talk and he doesn't <laughs> and, and, and and so this is of course disregarding any of the other stuff yeah. sort of infidelity or anything like that but right. um you know, was, is it tricky for for spouses? Do you think it, do you think that the the political correct culture has made things easier? Um, you know, does it have a bearing? I think it does, and I think it hasn't been positive for you know the spouses. As a matter of fact, you know, my wife was was well integrated, and the wives were uh, both when I was at uh, in the 79th at Hayford when I was at Mountain Home. Uh, the, the wives groups would get together. They were at our parties. You know, they didn't shy away. Um, I think the uh, the PC culture has made it where, and I think this is one of the reasons that you see the the guys themselves not being there as much, uh, is their wives don't want to come. Uh, they're going to go do something else. They're going to do their own thing. Uh, so I, I think the family being in the squadron uh, changed it, changed it, changed the the culture also. Uh, I mean, we used to have spouse days at the squadron all the time. Uh, you know, they'd come in, we'd do taxi or uh, wife's taxi day, all that kind of stuff. And, and so they were, they were around, uh, they were providing stuff, you know, when you're deployed, they were helping each other out. Uh, so it, I think it was more of a, of a family, even, even though we pushed it up hard and we did stupid stuff. Uh, I think the wives were part of it, uh, in the past. Uh, and I think that part is not as uh, maybe connected as it used to be. And I know that was starting to go away when I was a squadron commander. And, uh, you know, again, that was in the T6 later. But we had wives that just didn't want to participate. And, th- and we'd never seen that before. Uh, you know, in fighter squadrons, there was really – they didn't really get a choice to participate or not. They were just in. <laughs> it does it, – it, it sort of – I find it just as, a, as an outsider looking in – remarkable some of the stuff that the spouses had to put up with and 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 at the risk of anybody thinking this has turned into some kind of amateur psychology (laughs) we'll move on we'll move on to back to flying in a minute but yeah you know there are a couple of things that stand out to me the first is that you know given that a lot of what um you know frontline guys are doing is is secret um Mm -hmm. you know they can't talk about it um you know, if you look at so Hacker is a good example. He told me after the fact that, you know, when he deployed to Iraqi Freedom in March 2003, well, they deployed before, but that's when it kicked off. He wasn't allowed to tell his wife where he was going. Right. Although, in, interestingly enough, he said the phone number was unclassified. So he shared <laughs> that and you could just look up the <laughs> dialing code and uh, yeah. tell you where they were going. Um, but but they do, you know, they do have to put up with an awful lot of uncertainty. And then again, that, yeah. that doesn't even then include knowing whether or not you're going to come home at the end of the day. Um, that's true. So, so uh, do you think that, you know, that sort of disconnection then between maybe sort of the spouses and the Air Force that, that maybe was happening, does that make that kind of thing more difficult to deal with or, or 
Is it yeah. I think it's harder um, because they don't have the network established when you go. Um, uh, so like I said, when, when we deployed, they were, the wives were hanging out together. Uh, so, so maybe they didn't know everything, but they didn't know everything together and they had friends uh, and they were all in the same boat. So I think, uh, I think that uh, the people that we saw that did have problems, the spouses that did have problems during deployments were ones who weren't as engaged or didn't try to be. Uh, so anyway, I think, uh, I think that uh, has changed and makes it a little harder. Let's talk about flying. All right. Ten minutes talking about emotions. <laughs> Too much. Um, so, 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 how did you uh, how did you find that um, lift tour then? And um, um, at what point did you find out you're going to go to the Eagle? Yeah, um, I I loved it. It was we flew a ton. I flew on average probably about seven times a week. Uh, so usually double turn, and it'd be one one in the back, one in the front. So a lot of direct support time, a lot of solo time, uh, and a lot of BFM and and dropping bombs on the range. So it, it was a blast. Uh, and again, the culture was uh, was there, and we were had a bunch of guys from different MWSs hanging out. So, so, uh, so I loved it. Um, how did I end up going to the Eagle? Well, as I as I said, my, my calculus when I went there was I could hang out to get into a Strike Eagle, um, and so uh, that probably would have worked. But uh, about that time, uh, I think it was about ninety five, the F fifteen E RTU shut down to relocate uh, to. Um, Seymour. Now Seymour, yeah. So it was it was at Luke, and they uh, decided to move it. So so when I needed to leave, and I'd already been there kind of a little bit longer than I should have been at uh, Shepherd, and uh, but I couldn't get it. There just wasn't any slots. So uh, so my OG said, "Hey, I got a C model. Would you be interested in that?" And I I hadn't even considered that as as a future possibility for an old F one eleven guy. Um, but, uh, but I said, heck yeah, that'd be cool. You know, uh, when can I go? And he goes, well, it's, you know, soon. Uh, so I found out and, uh, next thing you know, I was headed to Tyndall, uh, to F-15 RTU. So you said it a couple of times now, MWS is a major weapon system. So that's just right. like the Air Force's way of saying, uh, an, an airframe, a particular airframe. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, how did you, I mean, was that intimidating then? Um, a little bit. I mean, again, we in the AT thirty eight, we had several F fifteen C guys. Um, so when I when I found out I was going there, we actually did a DAC DACT deployment, dissimilar combat training deployment, down to uh, Luke Air Force Base to support the F 16s So we were doing a bunch of DACT, and we did some of that at uh, at Shepherd too with the Tulsa Air Guard guys in the F sixteen. Uh, but I got checked out in ACT and ACM spinning up for that. And I worked with just the F-15 guys that were uh, spinning me up as a uh, flight lead for ACM and ACT. So, um, so I was really stressing a lot of the BFM stuff and I was flying a lot with the C model guys to kind of get my stuff together. And, uh, and I, what was most intimidating as I thought was going to be the hardest part was I'd never actually had a radar before. I never worked a radar, never worked a HUD, never really did intercepts uh, on BVR targets, you know, beyond visual range targets. Uh, And so I thought that was the part I was going to really probably struggle with. Um, But I thought, you know, (laughs) I've been flying BFM for three and a half years. I've been teaching it. I've probably got 500 hours of BFM now. Uh, So I thought I should be able to handle that part. Uh, And so that kind of gave me, I think, a 
false sense of security going into uh, F15R2 uh, because AT38 BFM's not a uh, fourth generation uh, BFM. So I learned that pretty pretty quick. What, what are the differences then? What, what can you say about that? Uh, power, uh, G's, <laughs> G available, um, nose rate, uh, a lot of things that are different. Um, turn circle management, uh, energy management, uh, it, it's very different. The the AT thirty eight basically for defense, you uh, go into your break turn, select you know full afterburner. Uh, you could muscle memory the jet. You know, you just roll here, boom, six G's, and you just hold it because the other jet doesn't have any more than that either. And uh, it takes it to get all the way to the floor, basically to do high low yo yos and, and enter, you know get under the turn circle, uh, and then you do your floor transition and it's over. Um, so. It was pretty predictable and pretty canned. Uh, so it was more like, to be honest, an F4. We, we used to do a little bit of dissimilar with the F4. And, and the F4 and the AT38 were about the same. Uh, so once you graduate you know, to an aircraft that has uh, greater than one-to-one uh, thrust-to-weight ratio, uh, has a very capable radar, uh, has off-boresight missile capability, <laughs> a gun that's canned up. So the picture when he's, when he's gunning you is different than pure pursuit. Uh, it's just looks a little different. That was a thing I had to get used to is what does it look, what does it look like when he's gunning me? Um, so, so those were the big things. And, and one of the biggest things right off the bat was the F-15 is huge compared to an AT-38. Uh, so you had to get comfortable kind of saddling up close to a, a much bigger aircraft. Uh, that uh, my first couple of stories was taking really long shots. So I'm like, that thing's huge. I can't, I can't get, I can't make it get as big as it needs to be uh, to, uh, to get in tight. So, so those were, those were some of my initial uh, things that made it a lot different. There's loads of questions I've got on that. So <laughs> I'll just try and try and work through them in, in some sort of logical order then. So uh, I think, probably a lot of people listening to this will um, be flight sim enthusiasts will probably have, have flown yeah. something like DCS and, and the F-15 that's in, in that simulation. And they'll have some sense that, you know, an, an intercept or some BFM is not that tricky. Yeah. You know, you do do some HOTAS and then some symbolic mm-hmm. appears and you do your thing. Um, and I'm, I'm really lucky because in my previous life as a, as a, as a writer and a photographer, I, I got to fly the Eagle in BFM and DACT and I got to sit in on briefings and, it's pages and pages of stuff that you guys talk about before you even, you know, so you do the motherhood stuff. The, yeah. You know, that's how we're going to get out to the air and how we're going to get back. That's all briefed as standard. Standard. Yeah. yeah. And and then everything else is just really, really intricate detail and so many line items. And, and so, so how did you go about learning all that stuff? And because there's a sort of part of me that uh, thinks about stories I've heard about guys who were in operational jets, went to something else uh, went back to an operational jet and really, really struggled. And some of them didn't actually make mm-hmm. it. Some of them ended up, uh, you know, with desk jobs. Right. What, what was the process? How, how did you do it? Um. Again, I, I think I think again the the AT thirty eight time. Although I, I was probably overconfident in its uh, trans transfer, uh, I knew all the tools. I knew when they told me you know, hey, you're doing this, I knew exactly what they were saying. Uh, so I didn't have a problem with uh, with understanding. It was sight pictures and feel. And and so I had to learn that uh, and 
and it, you know, I, I did okay in offensive BFM. You know, it took a, a little bit. I think I got one extra offensive BFM ride in my uh, RTU syllabus. Defensive was where I didn't do well, and I, I sucked pretty bad. <laughs> I had to get a couple extra de defensive BFM rides. And a lot of that was, uh, again, that kind of sight picture, like n understanding when I'm in a WES. Uh, because, you know, when you fly for three and a half years and the bad guy only has a gun and you know what that sight picture looks like and, and his his uh, missile is a basically an AIM-9 Papa, so it's only tail aspect and he has to basically uh, be pretty close. Now you're, you know, you're working with somebody who has AIM-7s, AIM-9s, AIM-120s. Uh, and so all of those different WESs uh, you have to defend against. And so that that's a huge difference uh, in sight picture looking over your shoulder. Um, so so offensively, it wasn't as hard. Um, you know, the, the the weapon systems are great. There's a lot of great cues in the airplane in the HUD. Uh, and so that part, I I think I did okay. Uh, and pulling G's, I, I didn't have any problem with G's. Um, but seeing the seeing the Wes's on the defensive side was the uh, biggest problem. And again, I knew what they were telling me. I wasn't untrainable because I understood, you know, they're like, here's, here's exactly what you're doing wrong. Look at the tape. And I'd go, I totally get it. It was taking that understanding from the debrief to the next flight and translating it backwards uh, to making it, uh, to seeing this, the right side picture. Um, and that, that uh, took a little time, probably, you know, more than it would have for uh, some, uh, but but I got through it. And then, and then once we got into the uh, ACM, ACT, uh, and actually the radar work, which I was more really concerned that I would be able to learn that uh, since I'd never done that, that actually came really pretty easily. And, and I really credit that with we could use the simulator whenever we wanted. And so I went over every empty time period I had. I went to the sim and I played with the radar and I ran intercepts and I shot gazillions of weapons and uh, everything I could. So I spent a ton of time in the sim learning uh, the radar because I was concerned that I wasn't going to be very good at that. And when I transferred that into the jet, doing ACM, ACT, uh, high aspect BFM, all of those things where you're, you know, coming uh, from BVR or, or from further out, um, running the radar and running the HOTAS uh, systems, the, the auto acquisition modes in the radar, um, all of that. Uh, really came pretty, pretty easy. Uh, and, and I excelled in those areas, uh, which I thought, I thought that was going to be the hard part. Um, so I was happy with that and, and I loved it. Uh, and uh, the other part that I thought was going to be hard was being by yourself. I think, uh, you know, having my 111 time, I always had a Wizzo, but, uh, but I'd flown, you know, I think I had 400 hours of solo time in the T38 teaching and, and so flying by myself wasn't uh, kind of what I was worried about. It was, can I employ the jet by myself? Uh, am I going to be good enough to run all the systems uh, without another dude? Uh, and, the, and the airplane is just so amazingly set up uh, that it, it just, you don't need it. You don't need a, another guy. Everything is, is in, your, in your hands uh, and available. And, and so I think that the, uh, you know, the designers, I, I tip my hat to the designers of the Eagle because they got it right. And it just was, I, I may have mentioned I was a human factors engineer major at the academy. 
And, and so every time I get into an airplane, I'm always thinking about how is, is this right? And it was right. Uh, so it was very comfortable uh, for me. And I think that helped a lot. You mentioned HOTAS then, uh, so that hands-on throttle and stick, which is the, the mm-hmm. combination of, you know, sort of buttons and switches that you can mm-hmm. toggle with your fingers without taking your hands off the stick and throttles. But um, I, I think someone once said to me, an Eagle guy once said to me, it takes about 350 hours or so, uh, you know, probably a, a, about that to get comfortable with it. Was that your experience? Uh, no, I guess not. I mean, I... I uh... I would say probably for me a hundred hours. Maybe if you were an eagle baby, where that you know you was your first experience, then maybe maybe because uh, uh, I had fifteen hundred hours of fighter time when I got to the eagle. So yeah, it wasn't the same, but uh, but I was pretty comfortable with it when I left uh, Tyndall. I mean, I obviously wasn't great. Uh, I was I was a, a nugget, you know, a, wing, a nugget wingman. But uh, but I felt comfortable in it. I knew what I was doing. Um, uh, but when, it, when we got to Mount Home, it was actually a different jet to some extent. The, we had a lot of different systems in the uh, C models at Mount Home because we had the brand new ones uh, with JTIDs and we had 220 motors and we had uh, APG-70 radar. So it was mecked a little different, uh, but it wasn't so much that it felt different. And the JTIDs, I think, operationally, coming into the jet with JTIDs uh, really enhanced your SA so much. Uh, that it complemented the stuff you're doing with everything else with your OTAS and your weapon systems. And, and I was, I was, I don't know that I would say I was, you know, God's gift to it in a hundred hours, but I was in combat in a hundred hours. <laughs> uh, and so um, I felt pretty comfortable. Okay. We'll get to that in a second then. So, okay. So, yeah. and, um, so JTIDs is the Joint Tactical Information Display System. Mm-hmm. So it's like a moving map, and um, other aircraft in your flight can send you their position. Yeah. And it, all, it all appears. Like, yeah. Okay, all right. All um, data, data link system and sharing system, yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about the, the process and of working the radar? Um, again, I mean, for, for many, many people, their only experience will be looking at a SIM like, like DCS, mm-hmm. which does a pretty good job, I think, of, of showing you the symbology, but, but not yeah. necessarily a great job of, the, of showing you the experience. How difficult is it? What what are the stages of an intercept? And what are the sorts of things you have to think about? I mean, do you just watch a little blip come down the screen and then when it tells you, you shoot it? Um, is it that um, simple? No, not exactly. But it, but it's, uh, in layman's terms, it's not that far off. I mean, so yes, I, mean, I think the, some of the most important parts of uh, running the Eagle radar and making sure you knew what you're doing is being in the right modes and scopes. Um, so th- that was, a, you know, you could screw that up. If you're, if you're in the wrong scope, you're never going to see anybody, you know. Uh, so you could be in, normally we'd be in an 80-mile scope, uh, and you'd start painting targets somewhere out 60, 60 50 miles or so. Uh, you could you just roll your cursor up there, and you can do some sampling. And so the, the radar was smart enough that it you just roll it over it, and it could tell you some information, aspect, altitude, airspeed. Uh, so you didn't need to lock them up right away. And often we didn't because if you lock people up, they know they're spiked and they might start reacting. Uh, but yeah, then you're going to put them in a certain spot on the scope. If you want to do a single side offset intercept, you put them in a, uh, over on one side and you track them down uh, through the range and you keep sampling them and you watch what they're doing. Uh, and basically you, you track them across the scope to where you want. 
um, if you're just going to engage BVR, you know, you, part of that is IDing them. So the Eagle did have some capabilities to do um, some non-cooperative target recognition uh, capabilities. So I could do modes and codes and, and find out, are they somebody I can kill? Uh, or, you know, if you had a hostile declaration from AWACS or another aircraft on that target uh, where you want to shoot at them, then, uh, then that's a little different than just an intercept. You know, if I'm going to pop them, then I'm going to shoot the weapon. I'm going to crank uh, to, to slow down and intercept for him, uh, make sure that he can't intercept me while my missile's in route. And then depending on what type of uh, weapon I'm firing, if I need to stay with the target or if I can drop them uh, and do something else. Um, and then there's also, you know, uh, track while scan. So you could, you could look around for other people while, while that's happening, uh, sample other targets, uh, inside of twiz. And, and so there, there was a lot going on in there. Uh, but it was essentially, yeah, you tracked them down the scope and the way you wanted them to flow, uh, and turned and then pulled them into the HUD, see them. And then you could, uh, you know, do a visual idea. You could shoot them with a heater, Saddle up for guns, uh, whatever, whatever you needed to do. So, so two questions then. Um, the, the Eagle has a, a visual intercept mode, um, and sort of allied to that question, which isn't a question; that was a statement. <laughs> but, but did you use it? Was the question? But allied to that was, you know, it's noticeable when you talk about you talk to F four guys. Mm-hmm. You know, you had to have a guy in the back working the radar because right. there was there was some maths happening in that person's head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of aspect, um, you know, rate, rate of closure, all the, you know, heading angle off, all the, all those things. Mm-hmm. So, if they wanted to do a visual intercept or they wanted to convert behind somebody, that would have to be happening. And and uh, it's interesting reading, you know, some of the experiences of of RAF fat, um, lightning pilots. You know, mm-hmm. how that was some, sometimes the reason that guys didn't succeed was not because they weren't great hands, but because they couldn't do the arithmetic in their head. And then turn an intercept into a successful one. So, so were you? This is a really long question, but were you using the, VR, the the visual intercept mode? Did you have to do things like mental maths while you were running the intercept? Um, sometimes and not really. Um, yes, I mean, yeah, we're, we're you're doing some, uh, but really, it's more of a um, the way I did it. I mean, I guess there could be different techniques, but the way I did it, it it's a relationship uh, down the scope through the intercept, right? So, so you could, I would watch, you tracked it in a certain way that uh, as the mileage clicks down and if, if he's just a straight and level target, you know, you're intercepting a bomber, you need to do a stern conversion and end up a mile behind him, which we actually practiced. And that was probably one of the hardest things to do. Uh, but once you get proficient at it, that's how you find the tanker, right? I mean, that's exactly how we go to the tanker. Uh, so you don't not really there's really not that much math there's uh there's more of a uh moving the 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 target along the radar scope in the way that you want it to move so you put it you know 30 degrees over and you drop it down and then you bring it to the cata cata intercept bring it to the nose and and uh pull it around and and by the time you're moving that way you you've got him in the hud right so once you're starting the the final part of the intercept, you you have them in the TD boxes in the HUD. You can see them. Um, so I don't think it was that m- mental calculation issues uh, that we were that I ever had to really deal with. It was more relational to how he moves on the scope. That I I would use geometry rather than calculations, I guess. Related to that, then, um, 
and I'm making an assumption to tell me if I'm wrong, but as, as an F111 guy, you know, your target's static, it's somewhere, it's mm. a thing, it's probably not, well, it might be moving, but probably isn't. Um, <laughs> you, you've got probably only one target, maybe a reserve target, whatever, but now you're going up against, you know, maybe four, eight, 12 yeah. uh, adversaries and they're all moving around. How, how difficult mm-hmm. is, it, is it to fly the aeroplane, work the systems and build a mental picture and perform your duties as a wingman or a flight lead? Yeah. Um, again, I, th- I think that for me, having a lot of uh, flying time helped with that because I, uh, and, and even in the, maybe the AT-38 was helping that because it was so dang small and it was painted blue. So, so keeping track of another AT-38 and tactical or, or doing high aspect BFM against them. I mean, you didn't have a radar, but man, you had to know where they were and you were always, always kind of making sure you do a lot of station keeping. So, so that part I didn't really think was, was all that difficult. Um, building the mental picture, um, when you get into gorilla type packages, like large force packages, was way easier with JTIS <laughs> because uh, because now everybody's lock is on in my scope too. Uh, so as soon as everybody starts sorting, I can see who's got who's got who. Uh, and and when I look at that picture versus what I'm seeing on my radar, you could really tell that hey, we've got everybody sorted. Uh, and so um, so it was less worrisome. Without JTIDs, it's tougher. And so when I went to when I went to Kadena later, and again, this is going to be a year, a couple of years later, uh, we didn't have JTIDs, so I had to kind of revert back to back to that um, non data link aircraft. Uh, and but I, but I, I was also kind of went back to wingman status for most of that time because I was a guest help, um, and and it really wasn't. I don't remember having any trouble uh, with even with large package uh, ops, kind of knowing where everybody was. I mean, there's a lot of it that's you're getting off calm, right? So, so you you got to listen to the calls, you got to extrapolate from the calls where that person's going to be. You got to know where uh, your good guys are, uh, and then when the merge happens, if it, if it's a big furball, uh, it can get dicey. I, I didn't really have, I think, problems in the BVR world. It's it's really when you get into a eight ten ship furball in, in the merge. That's when it gets crazy, and uh, and you do lose track of people, and you're doing belly checks and making sure you're not going to run into somebody. Uh, and and that's when you know at times you're like I'm getting the hell away from this for a second, and I'll pitch back in with more SA because right now I'm dangerous. <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm just uh, likely just to run into somebody. Uh, so yeah, that, that part could get a little crazy. Um, but I think, uh, in the BVR range, it wasn't, I didn't have as much trouble, uh, kind of building that mental picture, uh, and kind of being able to sort out where everybody was. Cluzo's book, um, so he's a friend of yours and, and that's how we, we ended up uh, sort of mm-hmm. talking to each other. But um, I've read his book. It's a great book. Uh, everyone should go out and buy it. But, uh, yeah, I'm waiting, book, I'm waiting for it to show up. I ordered you are, it. okay. Got here yet. I, I, won't, I won't spoil it, but, but he does talk a little bit about his experiences at Kadena as a, as a young guy and um, losing sight of his flight lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's noticeable if you read World War II accounts, things like uh, Battle of Britain, guys will talk about how you know, they merged with 60 ME109s or something, yeah. and then the next minute they yeah. can't see anything. There's no one. You know, they're just right. flying, flying along happy and uh, fat and dumb, I think you guys say, um, <laughs> and, and, and they can't see anybody to shoot at, and they're not being attacked. Um, 
did that happen a lot? I mean, do the speeds that are involved mean that that's more likely to happen, you know, disregarding technology and uh, things like JTIDs? Um, getting separated happens, yeah. Um, but I don't remember, I mean, I, I don't remember too many times that I uh, was in a, like, in a furball and didn't know where anybody was or, or ended up in that situation where, like, hey, all of a sudden I don't know where anybody is. Um, I, I will say that I, I jumped out of a furball just to get, uh, and it wasn't not what we do. I mean, if you're, if you're like anchored and you can't get anywhere, set, you know, blow out of it and then pitch back in from a different direction with SA with everything out in front of you, that's, that's a good, good thing to do. Uh, now when you do that, figuring out which one of those, uh, swirling masses is good guys and which one's your wingman before you shoot somebody is, is, where you have to resort it out because you do lose SA. If you have to pop out of that furball and then uh, reassess coming back in, and it's there's a lot of calm happening there. You know, hey, I've got I've got two in a left hand turn at ten thousand feet. Are you in front or back? Uh, and you know, he's like, I'm the I'm I've, I'm offensive. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm not going to shoot the guy in the back. Then. Um, and and so you you know, and, and again, the eagle was helpful with that with uh, Mozi Coz. I could get. Uh, a good guy, you know, IFF squawk. So if I, if I put my cursors over that guy or if I uh, auto acquisition lock him up and I get a, uh, a good guy designation, you're going to drop that guy immediately because I, I don't want to have him on there anymore. Uh, and then you work towards uh, to, towards the next guy. Um, so, so yeah, there's a, there is times when you have to rebuild that essay because of the way the engagement's happening. Um, but the Eagle had good, things that helped you do that. And then the uh, calm we used, I think was really important uh, in developing that. And, and of course, those kind of calms have been developed over a lot of different wars uh, with a lot of different fighter pilots. So, so uh, I wasn't, you know, I didn't make that stuff up. I just had the uh, luxury of learning from other people who did it for a long time before I did. I have heard it said that um, with situational awareness with SA, um, the first person to lose it is the last person to realize. <laughs> yeah. Did, did, are there sort of stages of losing SA or does it just hit you like a ton of bricks that you don't really know what's going on? Uh, I think there's stages. I think there's times you think you know what's going on and you don't. Um, uh, and that can happen. And again, uh, I, I don't think that, uh, I think that's the worst place to be is thinking you have SA, but it's all wrong. <laughs> if, if you know you're clueless, that's actually a good thing. Uh, because you're you're going to look for more information to fix it. Uh, if you think you know what's going on, and you you are totally wrong with your uh, what how you perceive the world, uh, you're going to be you could be dangerous to everybody else. Uh, so so I think that's true. I think that uh, there are stages of it, and and getting it back uh, does require you to realize you, you don't have it. Uh, so you can kind of flush okay, I thought this was what's going on, but that's not. So I'm flushing that entire concept and I'm going to rebuild uh, the picture in my head or in, in the cockpit so that I, uh, so that I get it back. And, and I mean, I obviously can remember times of those things happening and those start with, you know, getting on the radio and going like, you know, okay, Hey, are you headed North, <laughs> you know, and, and finding out, no, I'm headed South. Uh, and you're like, crap, I don't know who I'm, with them 
Uh, and so, you, you know, those kind of things. And again, uh, JTIBS was really helpful for that. Uh, I mean, and I know we'll get probably into it, but man, with JTIBS, you could fly at night like day tactics. It was that game changer-ish. Before we do that, we will get on to that. I'm, I'm just going to um, go back to emotions again, um, just, okay. just, just for a minute. Well, psychology, <laughs> really. But you, you, it was interesting. You mentioned, um, you know, sort of 15 or 20 minutes ago about one of the big changes you had in going to the Eagles. That it's a bigger airplane, so you were having to get closer to it than maybe you were mm-hmm. comfortable with. And uh, I also noticed that you know you had just said that you flush out because you maybe you were uncomfortable being in that sort of swirling dogfight mm-hmm. and it just recalled to mind uh, so so um uh, doug dildy disco who's a you know an eagle guy i wrote the, the eagle engage book with um, and, and other products as well actually other books um he, he told me about a time once when he was the i think he was the squadron commander at schusterberg and they landed and one of the guys just walked up to him with a sort of ashen face and said i can't do it anymore you know scaring the shit out of me um <laughs> did, did you did you does that resonate with you is that you know, how, how frightening is it yeah, well, I mean, I can understand the sentiment. I mean, I wouldn't say I, – I was definitely scared a couple of times. Um, uh, I mean, uh, probably the closest call I ever had and the most scared I ever was in an airplane was when I was an AT-38 instructor. and um, We were doing high-aspect BFM setup with a new student. And so for the, their first one, you know, I basically just do a turn-in, and I'm just a duck, just a platform for him to work a lead turn exercise on. And so I'm watching him and he's coming kind of right at me. And, and I can tell like this guy needs to bunt, you know, he's going to, he's going to be really close. And I'm watching him, watching him kind of waiting for the IP and the other jet to take it. Uh, and it's just getting bigger and he is not moving in the cockpit. And so finally, and I, I was solo. Finally, I just, I just pushed, I, you know, about negative two G pushed, and I heard him go over to, over my melon. It was, just, uh, you know, his jets, uh, engines just right over the top of my head. And so that scared the crap out of me. And uh, that was the F, U, F word came out on the radio on that one. Uh, and we had to knock it off. And, and what I found out later was uh, when you're exactly per, pure pursuit in the uh, AT-38, the student's melon was basically right there. You couldn't, you'd have to bend around to see because uh, if he was directly pure pursuit, you can't see. Uh, and that was what was happening. The IP was going, hey, do you got him? Do you got him? And, and the student was like, yep. But he wasn't maneuvering his airplane the right way. And he would have hit me if I didn't move. Um, so that was – I was still at Holloman there. So that was kind of early in my AT-38 time. Uh, but, yeah, we, we dang near had him in there. Um, in the F-15, uh, I had some, you know, some close ones. Um, but – you know, we had we had good ROE, the, the uh, no pure pursuit head-on missile attacks inside of nine thousand feet. That's a, that's a good rule, uh, and so we we I think I think guys were pretty good at, at uh, doing that ROE. Now, obviously, in combat, that isn't going to work, and, and you got to you got to do what you got to do. Um, so I, I, I couldn't. I, there's no way I could say I never caught down uh, from a flight really sweaty and and you know a little bit like man, that was a crazy one. Uh, but I, I, I never, I never wanted to quit. <laughs> uh, I loved it. It was, it was awesome. I mean, even when you're scared, I, it was great. Uh, I don't remember ever coming down thinking like, 
uh, even when it was dicey, like that's, I don't want to do that again. It was always a, can we go again? Can I, can I go now? Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I do understand the sentiment. Um, I never had a, one of my guys do that. Um, but I understand it. Let's t- let's talk then about you getting to, to mountain home. Um, mm-hmm. You obviously graduated the B course at, uh, yep. at Tyndall. Um, yep. what, what determined where you went and did you have a preference? I knew where I was going. Uh, I had the assignment to mountain home, uh, before I went to Tyndall. Um, so, so yeah, because I was in actually a B course, it was a TX. So it was a TDY. Um, it was a short course. If for, uh, you ex- did the TX. Yeah. Okay. yeah for, because I had more than a thousand hours of fighter time. So even though it wasn't, uh, similar, it was a TX. It's, it was a track two TX, which is for, uh, experienced fighter pilots haven't flown the F-15 before. Um, okay. a couple of different TX tracks. Um, so mine, like, for example, I mean, I only flew the jet twice before I solo. I had two hours in, in it for my first uh, ride in the C-Model, which was cool. Um, but uh, we, because it was a TX Track 2, we got a little more. Uh, it wasn't B course level, but it was more than the I'm coming back to fly the Eagle again uh, class. Um so, so I knew I was going to Mount Home before it started. Um, it, it was kind of funny. Uh, one of the things I remember, uh, Pete Stavros was my flight commander. At, I was in the first fighter squadron at Tyndall. And uh, he's like, oh, man, you're so lucky going to Mount Home. Those guys, uh, it was a composite wing, and we could talk about that because that was pretty unique. Um, but he's like, yeah, those guys, all they do is go to Red Flag. It's a blast. They never deploy. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, that sounds like fun. But uh, uh, that ended up not being true. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I knew I was going to Mountain Home and I was excited about it because I'd flown the F-111 at Mountain Home. Uh, and so we were kind of going back to, to a similar uh, place that we'd been. I was familiar with the locations, familiar with the airspace. Uh, we liked Idaho. Um, so, so it was good. We were, uh, my wife and I were happy about it. Uh, although we did kind of lament that every other Eagle base seemed to be at the beach. Um, but uh, <laughs> the Mountain Home was definitely not the beach. But my wife from Colorado, so she liked the mountains, and and it was a good location for us. Yeah, so, so I was just going to say, so just picking up on that composite wing thing. So that that's uh, mm-hmm. the three sixty sixth fighter wing, um, right. if I remember right, and and mm-hmm. so that's some F sixteen, some F fifteen E's, some F fifteen C's. Did you have some marine prowlers as well? We had some prowlers. Yeah, yeah. we had. They were actually not located with us, but they were uh, part of the composite wing. They actually flew out of Woodby Island. Uh, but we would work them into packages and train with them, uh, uh, so they'd come over. Um, but so they they were technically assigned to the three sixty six, but they didn't live at Mount Home. Um, and we, we, go ahead. No, sorry, I was I was just going to say, and and the idea is from an Air Force point of view, I think they ditched it in the end, didn't they? But the idea was the whole yeah. wing would deploy to a combat mm-hmm. theater, and then all the pieces you'd need would be together and used to working together. Right. And it kind of, it, I, one of the reasons I was happy to go there and I was excited about it is that's what we did during Desert Storm in Inserlik. And then we talked about that a little bit, but we had a composite wing at Inserlik that was, uh, you know, they've done it in the past in World War II and they've done uh, it uh, some other combat uh, operations out of composite wings. So so when we did it at during Desert Storm, it wasn't completely unique, but it was really good. And so we had everybody in the same place. We all trained together for those you know, the buildup, and then we were uh, we were able to employ together. Um, so, yes, what they did was they basically took 
that concept that we did during Dead Storm and said, uh, we're going to build these AEFs. So it wasn't going to be a composite wing. It was going to be this new concept of building air expeditionary forces. And so Mountain Home was kind of a test of that. And can we afford or does it work if we build a bunch of little composite wings all over the place? Uh, and what they found out with Mountain Home is, yes, it's extremely effective, uh, but it costs way too much money. Uh, and we don't have enough assets to sprinkle them and make uh, a bunch of composite wings uh, that are actually combat effective because you don't have enough of you don't have enough F-15s, you don't have enough F-16s to put the right mixtures at multiple places. Uh, so, yeah, but, but we also had our own tankers. We had a KC-135 squadron at Mount Home, and we had uh, B-1s. We had a, a, the 34th Bomb Squadron, so we had a six B-1s. So that, that group was, was hugely effective. Uh, we had 18, 18 C models, 18 E models, 18 CJs, uh, six B-1s, I think we had seven tankers and, uh, and then we had the, uh, the prowlers. I don't remember how many specifically we had, but when we deployed, they would attach with us. Um, and so you had, you had everything you needed, uh, and in the kind of the right amounts. Um, so it worked great. And, and we had these different deployment packages. Basically it was based on fighter size. So you deploy six, 12 or 18 of, each fighter type, or you could mix them if you wanted a lot of strikers, you could take more strike eagles. Uh, if you needed more CJs, you take more CJs. Uh, so it was very flexible um, in concept, but it was super expensive. Uh, and then one of the, some of the things they did to try to make it work better was, and that's why we had at home, we had our C models had 220 engines. Uh, so we were common, all the fighters had 220s. Um, so the Viper, the Viper guys hated it because the CJs had, uh, front or had GEs, you know, usually, and now they're kind of detuned to these Pratt two twenties and the strike Eagles, uh, it was the same engine as the strike Eagle at the time. Uh, so we loved it though. The C models were like, man, we got these big motors and, and, uh, uh, and that helped because then every, every fighter had the same engine. Um, and then we also had the APG 70 radar, which was common. Uh, with the Strike Eagle instead of the APG-63, which most of the F-15 squadrons had the APG-63. Uh, again, it was pretty, uh, mecked pretty much the same in the sea, uh, but it had a ground mapping capability, obviously, because the, the Strike Eagle needed that. And uh, I used, because I was an 111 guy, I used to play with the ground mapping stuff on it every once in a while. <laughs> Did you have to keep that secret from your squadron mates? Yeah, I didn't talk. Actually, I talked about it once when we were deploying to, to Saudi. I uh, I turned it on over the med, and I'm, like, mapping out the Nile. And I, uh, I was telling guys, hey, man, if you go to this and do this, you can see the Nile. It's really cool. Uh, I don't think anybody else did. But... Uh, but anyway, yeah, so we had that, which was a little different. Was that, uh, because of, because there is, uh, for anybody who, who knows anything about the Eagle, they'll, they'll, they'll know that sort of infamous expression, no, not a pound for air to ground mm -hmm. from, from the, um, the SPO, the, the special programs office for the Eagle. But, um, mm -hmm. was there that kind of mentality as an F-111 guy, were you ribbed for your background? Um, not really, um, because I, I think I could have been, but because I had combat experience, uh, I, I actually I actually got, when I was at Tyndall, it started, I actually uh, requested dispensation, special dispensation, to be allowed to say the word bomb 
uh, in because of course that was not allowed. And, and uh, I, it was granted because I dropped him in combat, right? So, so they're like, okay, well, you're allowed to say it, but nobody else is. Uh, and then at Mountain Home, because we had the Strike Eagle guys, and they were, you know, right over next door, actually. I mean, our two squadron bones were next to each other. Um, and because I had a lot of 111 guys that ended up in the Strike Eagle, I had a lot of friends that were over in the, in the, uh, in the Bull Tigers, the 391st. As a matter of fact, I had been in the Bull Tigers in the F-111, uh, so, so I was allowed to go to their squadron without uh, being chastised and uh, and kind of talk about it in the squadron. So, I, actually, I think it was somewhat of an asset because, yes, culturally we we felt like that, but we also had to work with those guys on a day to day basis. And and having somebody who who spoke air to ground a little bit and understand what they were asking for, I think was helpful. Um, one of the things I thought though when I was coming when I was at Mountain Home was uh, that I thought they should figure out how to fly the Strike Eagle differently because I felt like they flew it like a big F4 with way more capability uh, because basically the Wizzo in the back seat would still do a lot of the stuff with the radar that he didn't, the pilot didn't need him to do it. And I saw them mess up intercepts where the Wizzo had one guy and the pilot was looking at somebody else uh, and miss uh, sorts because of that. Um, and so I, I advocated that they basically use the two guys in separate roles where the front seater is an air to air expert and the back seater is an air to ground expert. And then they both support each other depending on which role they're in at the time. Uh, and so I, my thing was I told the strike guys, man, as soon as you go to air to air, tell the wizard to shut his freaking mouth and look out the window uh, because the best thing he can do is see what's going on out there. Uh, and keep keep sight of everybody, and uh, and tell you if anybody's rolling in on you. Um, but the radar was the same, so they didn't. I didn't think I wouldn't want the Wizzo. I wouldn't want anybody running my radar during intercept uh, with the capabilities that the F-15 had. Uh, all you could do is get confused. <laughs> and so I I think that I don't know what, how they're doing it now, but if if they uh, aren't doing that, I still think they should. <laughs> I, th I think that with the ASA radar now, there's a, there's some kind of timeshare going on, isn't there? You can pretty much use it in an air-to-ground and an air-to-air role yeah, at the same time. It, uh, that's that's true. Um, and I think their 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 fighter data link—I can't remember what it's called now—SID situational information display SID. Yeah. I can't remember what it's. I'm so out of touch with it. I don't know. Yeah. But I think that's a timeshare thing as well. You know, you can have the guy in the back working the air-to-ground radar and have the SID display in air-to-ground mode, and yeah. the guy in the front can be doing the air-to-air -air stuff. But um, well, that'd, well, be, uh, that'd be better. I, I think it'd be interesting. I've got uh, some. I've got an F-15E guy who's ex-Wizzo who transferred to the front seat of the Strike Eagle. Um, he's coming on in a couple of weeks, so I'll ask him a question and see what he says. Yeah, but, that'd be cool. You do raise a, an interesting point. I did hear uh, there's a forum I go to on the internet that um, you know has a lot of Air Force guys um, and and some not very complimentary comments from mostly obviously front seaters about you know the, the dynamic between pilot and Wizzo. Um, and a handful of them have experienced both single seat and um, sort of crude worlds. Um, did you did you sort of come out of having been an F one eleven guy and an F fifteen guy with a with a, a sort of definitive view on you know whether the Air Force should be pursuing aircraft that were single seat, whether or not the second person was necessary? Yeah, um, I think it depends on the mission and the aircraft. Um, so in the one eleven it was necessary. 
Um, in, I think, the F4, the way that the technology was at the time, it was probably necessary. In the F15, it's not. You know, uh, again, I, I used to say, though, that if I if if you put another seat in there, you could put anybody in there. But I would turn it around. So that all they did was look out the back hmm. um, because that's your blind spot. Right. I mean, every, all your system, all your sensors are, are forward. Uh, you're usually looking forward. Um, I didn't need any help with that. Um, but you never wanted anybody to sneak in from behind you. And if you had, you know, if I had just, a, you know, an R2-D2 or, or anything that was looking backwards all the time and just goes, hey, somebody's behind you, that would be worth its waiting in the seat. Um, but I didn't need them for anything else. Now, I think I think it's different in the air-to-ground air to mission, uh, especially if you're flying low. Now, now that you have smart weapons and we're not really flying low anymore, um, the opportunity to hit the rocks while you're, you know, down in the scope is not as great. So maybe we don't need it anymore. Um, but I can say that in the nineties, when we were flying low level, uh, it, sometimes it took every, you know, sometimes it took all the pilot stuff to fly the airplane and you still needed to have somebody doing the weapons, uh, in the air to ground role. Um, so I think, it, I think that role it's necessary. Um, but in air to air, uh, no. Um, so, but I mean, how many single mission aircraft do we have left? I mean, we, yeah. we really don't, um, so. But it certainly looks like with the F-35 with, um, the yeah, sort of automation, sensor fusion, uh, that kind of thing. Um, you know, single seat is, is a, is a realistic proposition. Um, although interestingly, there's, you know, they've got now Royal Wingman, which is this drone program, yeah. uh, you know, the, uh, and, and, you know, that ironically enough suggests that you do want somebody in the backseat controlling the, the loyal wingman, the, the drones, yeah. but, you know, whether or not AI is advanced enough to allow them to really sort of be effective, who knows, but so, so going back then to, to the, um, you know, jated APG 70, you know, better motors on those, those Eagles, um, yeah. were, is, is it, uh, you know, real, real is it sort of um, accurate to assume that um, if you had jateds, everybody in the composite wing was contributing to that? Or was it just the Eagle? Guys? No, no, nobody else had it. Um, just the uh, C models. Um, so, so no. Um, but when you were like in combat operations or even in exercises, AWACS had it uh, and then, uh, or GCI, different GCI units uh, could get into the net. Um, when you worked with the Navy, if you were near a carrier, they were in the net. Um, some other, I actually at Red Flag, I flew with a British Tornado uh, unit that uh, their air version, the Tornado, um, they had JTEDs and we worked actually the very first international integration of JTEDs uh, at Red Flag when I was there in, I think it was 98. Um, and so, so no, no, I couldn't see where they all were unless AWACS was tagging them and pushing that data to us and then I could see it. Uh, but I didn't, you didn't really need that. Um, what I, what I needed more was engagement data and, uh, where, you know, where we were, where our uh, C models were, and that was all in there. Um, so, in, you know, I didn't, I didn't need to know where all the friendlies were, uh, cause presumably they're behind me, <laughs> uh, because we were always out front. Right. I mean, so that was the cool thing about the flying the F-15 is you're always the first one in. Um, so, you know, you'd sweep or set up whatever you were doing for OCA. Um, and anybody in front of you when you came in is not, is not going to be friendly because 
there's nobody in front of you, right? So until you uh, until you're there and, and start setting up your cap, and then you obviously could have people all over the place. Uh, but initially, you're always the first one in. Uh, you sweep up into the into the lane or into the area, uh, and then start a start your cap, and and then you could sample people. So as you're turning back around, if I wanted to check them, and again, you can do that with um, with uh, interrogating IFFs. So I didn't need necessarily uh, kids to to see them for that. Um, you can do that with IFF. Did, did uh, that system make you lazy? You, you said that when you went to Kadena, they didn't have to. They didn't have it, so you, you had to learn how to uh, fly without it. Um, not really learn how to fly without it. Just I mean, because sometimes you didn't have it. Sometimes it you know didn't work. Um, so it was. I, I would say it was very good at enhancing your essay, but we we never treated it like it was perfect. Um, so. I mean, there was cool things in it. Like when you deployed, when we went to Saudi the first time, we were on our way over there and we had three cells of six. We took 18 eagles um, over to Saudi and and you could bump out on scope for hundreds of miles, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And you could then pick somebody like other formations that were in JTIDs that were, you know, 300 miles away and then just drill down and, and come into their formation and you could see where everybody was and, and we're like, oh, that's kind of fun. Uh, or if there was, a, like I said, a carrier in the net, I could drill over on him. You know, pretty much almost anywhere in the world he is. If I know where, which direction I could roll out to him and find him. Uh, so, so it, there was a lot of capability in there. Um, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the end all be all. And you know, you still had to kind of know what was going on. Uh, it just helped a lot, and and it helped a lot at night or. Uh, when things were getting a little crazy, because then we could still basically fly wall at night with, with JTIDs because I could see, you could see it under scope, you know, we're, we're all lined up. Uh, once once everybody started turning, then, uh, you know, you had to kind of go back to those regular uh, station keeping procedures to make sure you weren't doing anything uh, to the wrong guy. Uh, but, but it just gave you a lot more SA. So can you just talk uh, a little about then the flying that you did at Mountain Home and then and then maybe we can talk about Southern Watch, which I'm guessing is what you did uh, if you went mm-hmm. to Dharan. I'm assuming it's Dharan, but... Um, what was, was no, we it? went to PSAB. PSAB, yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so were you always flying as, as a composite wing? I mean, would you Eagle guys go out and just, you know, do your own thing or would you always mm-hmm. have to be flying with someone else? No, no, we, we trained, uh, you know ourselves a lot for you know all the bfm and, and not all of it we actually did deep you know dissimilar bfm a lot too uh but uh we made sure we were good and then we would do a lot of dissimilar though so you know most most eagle units they want to do dissimilar um because it's better than just fighting against yourself all the time uh so having dissimilar assets at your base we could do it almost anytime we wanted so that was good um, but there was times when you're upgrading people or you're training where you don't want, you know, the Viper guys being redder and they're don't, they don't do what you ask them to. Uh, so you're really trying to show a specific thing to your wingmen. You can brief, you know, your other guys and they know exactly what you need. Uh, but the Viper guys might go, eh, they don't really need that. Let's give them, you know, the exploding cantaloupe. You're like, well, dude, that wasn't what I'm trying to teach this kid, you know, something. And you totally, to- you totally cornered it. Um, so we did that, uh, we did a, you know, similar training a lot when we were 
doing building blocks and stuff like that. But uh, then we do what we call, I think we called it uh, mountain home force employment or something like that. We had a name for it, but we do these big composite packages and, and we'd go over to like Navy Fallon or we'd go down to, uh, we would go to Nellis a lot, you know, cause we had our own tankers. So we'd take off at our own tankers, go down to the Nellis ranges and do uh, some stuff down there and then just come home. So not even land at Nellis, uh, but large, large force uh, stuff at, uh, down to Nellis and, and back. Um, or on the, uh, the, the Utah test and training range, which was basically the other part of the entire state of Utah, uh, you could fly in and we would go there a lot. Um, so there was, a, there was a lot of different opportunities for us, uh, both similar and dissimilar. Uh, and then we would go down to Hill a lot too. They weren't very far away from Mount Home down to Hill Air Force Base, uh, which had a giant F-16 wing. Uh, and we would fight with them a lot, uh, a lot of large package work with um, them trying to do air to air and air to ground and come down there and either do red air for them or, or do blue against uh, large package ops down at Hill. Uh, so there was a lot of different things we were doing. Um, for me, you know, at first I was, I was a wingman, so I was, I was learning, but we, uh, I got there in November. I was MR in January, I think. And, uh, and then we actually deployed in March. Um, so it wasn't long. I'd only been there for about four months when we, uh, deployed to PSAB. And that was a, uh, uh, composite deployment. We had, um, 18 CMOS and, and it, this, I mean, this was crazy. I don't know if, if you know who, uh, Gork Gorens is, he ended up, being a four-star, but Gork was our squadron commander at the time. And so for an 18 PAA squadron, you have 20 tails, uh, 18 PAA uh, primary aircraft authorized. That was our max strength, but we had 20 actual airplanes on the ramp. And this is one of the things that's negative of a composite wing is, is if, if I need to take all 18 and I only have 20 and one or two of them are broke, I mean, it's very, very tight and you can't borrow from the other squadron because nobody else has F-15Cs. Uh, so, so you got to figure that out. And so when we had to take 20 airplanes to Saudi, I mean, 18 airplanes to Saudi, uh, we needed air spares and ground spares too, you know, so we we're launching all 18 at the same time to head over. Uh, and we actually had all 20 of our airplanes, every single tail in the squadron, in the air, uh, on that night when we uh, took off and we ended up taking the primary 18, the two air spares returned. Uh, and so that was pretty majorly impressive. Uh, and we, we landed at Lodges field there in the Azores, uh, half, uh, halfway, uh, spent about 30 hours on the ground there and then flew the rest of the way to Saudi. Uh, and again, 18 up and 18 on the ground into, into PSAP. Um, so, that's the first time I've ever seen that. Uh, and, and they all made it. I mean, nothing major, you know, no major issues, uh, ready to, ready to turn to combat operations in 12 hours. Um, so extremely impressive, uh, for our maintenance folks and, and the squadron to get that kind of, uh, performance out of the jets. Uh, but anyway, yeah, we got over there in March and, uh, it was, AEF-5, it was called. So we were in the uh, development of the Air Expeditionary Force. Uh, and so we were there for Southern Watch uh, with 
all of us, we had, I think, 12 Strike Eagles and 12 CJs. Uh, we didn't take the bones. or the, We had some of our tankers there. Uh, but we were mostly doing uh, all kind, all the Southern Watch missions, uh, U2 support, lane defense, uh, escort, um, long-duration bowls, just covering Southern Watch uh, missions. Was it uh, – so, so just for anyone listening, so PSAB is, is- – is Prince Sultan Air Base? Prince Sultan Air Base, yeah. So, um, obviously in Saudi Arabia. And so Southern Watch was the uh, southern no-fly zone to stop um, you know, Saddam Hussein's Air Force from flying. I think helicopters were allowed. Is that, was that right? Um, depended on depended. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, somewhat. But, 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 but principally, you were there to make sure he wasn't going around. I think there were some, um, I, I want to say... Uh, there were some tribal people in the in the south. I think that he was keen to attack, and uh, you yeah. know, Saudi Saudi was in the south, and so was Kuwait as well. So there was there mm. were a bunch of reasons for it. But what was it boring? Um, it wasn't very. There wasn't much going on. Um, so at times it was boring. There was a. I mean, there was a couple of a couple of exciting missions, but but uh, they didn't really have to do with the threat. Um, they had to do with other other things that happened, um, like. Uh, the biggest thing we were worried about, you know, again, and it had to do a lot with supporting the U2. Uh, we had a lot of uh, data, uh, intelligence collection going on, and the U2 was up there quite a bit. So we do a lot of U2 support. Um, and so obviously we're worried about a high-fast flyer. Obviously they had the uh, Fox bat. And so if it jumped up and, and made a uh, high mock run at a U2, he just has a hard time getting away. Uh, and so doing one of those uh, intercepts on a high-fast flyer, somebody over, over Mach 2. That's a challenging intercept uh, to get out in front of them and get you know the weapons in the right place. Um, and so I was up there with uh, uh, number two with Divot Nicholson one time. And we we uh, we had just fenced in and crossed into Iraq, and all of a sudden I get a contact uh, that's north of the thirty third parallel, which was basically the line they weren't supposed to fly south. Of. And it was looking like that kind of profile, you know, I rolled my bars up there and I'm like, well, this dude's going pretty fast and he's up at like 35,000. Uh, so I'm watching him and, uh, you know, call him out, Hey, contact, you know, whatever it was. one eight zero sixty five thirty five thousand 35,000 Mach one. Uh, so we're looking at it and, and he keeps trucking down the scope. And, and so we're calling AWACS. They're like, we don't see anything. Divot's looking with his radar. He's like, I don't see anything. Uh, and so I locked it up, do a sample lock and it's a hard lock. It's a, it's a dude's going fast, you know, do the, uh, IFF check, no modes and codes. So, you know, he's not squawking friendly. I'm like, dude, what is this guy? And so he's, he looks like a Fox bat. He looks like a Fox bat profile. Uh, and he's on my scope for about 10 minutes. Uh, we're, we're working an intercept and, and seeing, and, but did it never season. AWACS doesn't see him. And you may have heard of this before, but it ends up it's a gem lock, a gem line lock, a jet engine modulation lock, uh, which is kind of a weird uh, technical thing where a wave can come off of a jet engine actually forward out of the intakes and cause a ripple that the radar actually can pick up and see. And and it that's what it was. Uh, but it was it was a gorgeous lock. It was a beautiful it, it just went away after you know about 10 minutes we went back in afterwards and looked at the film and everybody's going dude that is that i've never seen one last that long I've never seen one that stayed like that and uh I, i'm like i don't know i mean it, it looked real but it was there was nothing there um so you know things like that happen 
but really they weren't they weren't doing anything at the time. Uh, this was ninety seven, March of ninety seven. Um, so it was it was pretty quiet um, north of north of the border. You know, we we'd see them every once in a while uh, flying up there and uh, and watch them and sample them and uh, and but. Uh, we, I, I never had anybody come south during that deployment. Uh, so it was mostly flying caps and doing long bowls and getting gas a lot and then going back to PSAD. Uh, we did do some CT, though, which I guess was different. We were continuation training. Uh, we were doing, uh, you know, every couple of days, we'd just go fly a, a 2v2 or a 4v4 out in the uh, the training airspace and just to keep our – kind of, uh, I guess, the edge uh, and work the radar and, and practice uh, weapons employment um, because we weren't shooting anybody up, up north. That's a really interesting point, uh, flying those CT sources. How would you describe the sort of atrophy or, or the rate at which you lose um, the edge, as you, as you describe it? You know, How often do you need to fly in order to still be good? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think, I mean, I, the minimum wrap wasn't really enough. I, I think you got to fly a couple times a week minimum. Uh, and, and that needs to include pulling G's. <laughs> uh, because I, for me, the first thing that I got weak on was, you know, you go up after you hadn't flown for a couple of weeks and you do your G awareness turn and almost black out. Um, just because your body needs to re cage that. Uh, process again and then you know after a couple of turns you're fine and your body's like oh yeah I remember what to do here and how to how to uh, do your L1 straining maneuver and all that um, but your resting G tolerance falls off quick um, so you need to be you need to do that um, enough that you you know that you're ready uh, and then a couple of times a week I think is enough to keep you uh, proficient and capable um, for the young guys maybe three uh, and sometimes we didn't get that much, uh, which was kind of bad. Um, but how old were you in, in 1997? Um, Approximately. Well, yeah, I was, born, I was just thinking, born in 66. Uh, so what was I, 30, I guess? Okay. And the, <laughs> 31. <laughs> I didn't ask that just to embarrass you. Yeah. No, no, I was like, no, that's like, that's math in public. Um, yeah. 31. I was going to say we could edit it out, but I won't. Yeah, yeah. no, no, um, no, that's fine. <laughs> the, reason, the reason I was asking was, um, you know, again, you, you just sort of hear anecdotally that um, flying fighters is a young man's game. And I, I remember, mm. um, I can't remember, I can't remember exactly who it was about, but there was somebody, you know, he was a Navy pilot who could kill anybody within 90 seconds or whatever. <laughs> and, 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 you know, yeah. the, the, the counter to that was if you were a young guy, you'd just go out there and pull lots and lots of G's yeah. and he would tire out. Um, yeah. Is that, is that, is there some semblance of truth to that? Is it a young man's game or, or young, uh, young woman's game? Yeah. Well, I think so. The, the pulling G's is uh, that, that gets uh, to be something that you don't want to do. But I, but I think with uh, experience and with cunning comes the ability to kind of, do it without pulling as many G's. So you, you learn, you learn how, and, and I, I saw that even in my, you know, limited experience with, uh, with young guys when, um, I upgraded really fast when I, when we got back from that deployment, I was, uh, made a flight commander. 
Um, so it only, you know, very quickly I was a flight commander and, and I wasn't even a two ship at the time. So, so my uh, squadron commander's like, well, we need to get you through, you know, four flug and you need to be a mission commander since you're already a flight commander. We need you to move that through. And so I, I upgraded really quick. And because I was a supervisor, I could do a lot of upgrades that weren't, didn't require an IP. So I'd fly with a lot of young guys. Um, and I saw that, you know, they're just bang on the stick and pulling G's and I'm like, wait till they unload because now they're out of energy and just gun them and then <laughs> come back and show them the tape and go, see, here's where you were pulling like nine G's and I look at mine, you know, and I'm like pulling three, but, but I'm slow, you know, you just know how that geometry is going to work out. And so I think, I think there is a, uh, there is a, with maturity, I think you don't necessarily always need to pull a million G's. Now on the defensive side, you know, G's are important. Uh, but offensively, you can probably do a lot um, that doesn't need need to always be at the limiter. <laughs> um, just maneuvering the jet and preserving and, and working energy. Why are G's important for defensive? Uh, to create angle problems, right? I mean, so that's, that's the... Uh, you're trying to move the WES away from your uh, jet all the time. And so uh, generating that, that turn rate uh, to change the aspect of your jet with relation to the other guy is really important. And so, so it's not necessarily G's, but it is rate. It's turn rate that's, uh, that's important. Uh, so, you know, that's why I think in, in defensive, you're going to do a break turn. And the break turn is largely to get you down below corner or close to corner so that you can really turn the nose. Because uh, at higher airspeeds, you know, you you might be pulling a lot of Gs, but you're not generating a lot of turn um, with respect to nose uh, nose authority. Um, so, yeah, I mean, at 500 knots, I can be at the G limit, right? And I'm, my turn circle is huge. Uh, but below corner, um, you know, below 320 or so, I can generate extremely fast nose rate, uh, but I'm you know, I'm going to lose energy when I'm doing it. Um, so it's a trade-off. It's that all air to air is a trade-off. You know, it's an energy game. Do I, do I, do I need energy or do I need turn? Uh, and you play that game the whole time uh, between rate and radius of, of your turn. Uh, that's the, that's the whole game. And on defense, it's important to make it happen quickly, make that change happen quickly. Because uh, really, what uh, in defense you're surviving to go offensive. That's that's the whole whole uh, defense is a temporary uh, problem to go offensive as fast as you can. Um, so that's how I always thought of it. Anyways, uh, I don't want to be defensive. I want to be offensive. So let's change it as fast as possible. All these things you, you mentioned ages ago in, in this interview, you know, going from the AT38 to the F15 and in energy management, turn rate management, turn mm -hmm. cycle management, all these different things, um, you know, being able to assess what the other guy's energy state's like. Um, mm -hmm. Does does there come a point where all these things, and you just mentioned L1, you know, just the straining maneuver, um, where mm -hmm. all these things just happen and you, you almost have a, an out-of-body experience where you're, you're not thinking about them anymore or is there always a component of you, you know, um, consciously assessing what's going on. I, I think you're always assessing. I think some of it is it becomes automated in muscle memory, um, but uh, but yeah, you can't ever kind of take it for granted. 
Um, because as soon as you do, they're going to do something you didn't expect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so being unpredictable. I mean, the, you know, you always talk about that. I always thought it was funny on Top Gun where, you know, Ice comes into Maverick and he's like, I don't like you because you're dangerous. You're unpredictable. And I'm like, exactly. <laughs> you don't. You don't want to be predictable. Predictables, you know, you die if you are predictable. So, so there, there's things that I know the other guy's going to do that are predictable. But, the, but the reason he does them is to change the calculus of the engagement. Um, and as long as you're changing the calculus of the engagement, there's always something else you have to do, right? So, so BFM is is about solving problems. It, that's you're just continuously solving a problem. Um, and so the way that that uh, becomes, I guess to both a, uh, a uh, how fast can you analyze the changes to the problem and then do something that is advantageous to you uh, is, the, is the thing, right? So they, they talk about the OODA loop, I guess. That was one of those things that came out a while ago. And it's that orient, what is it, orient, decide. Observe, orient, decide. Act. Yeah, there you go. Um, that the faster you can do that, the faster that happens. The um, and that's the, I think the same guy, isn't it? Ninety second Boyd. Yeah, Boyd. Yeah, was, yeah. yeah, that's the guy that came that's up. That's who it was. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that uh, the conceptually, that's it. Right. So you have to be able to do that faster than the other guy, uh, and then make the right decisions too, and then maneuver your aircraft. Hmm. You know, there there is a, a problem with I know I want to put it there, and can I put it there? Uh, because do I have the right energy state? Do I have the, enough power? Um, you know, and so so there's things that I might want to do that I can't do because of my energy state, and so I have to do something else. Um, and those kind of things become feel. Uh, and the F-15 talked to you really well. Um, so you could it had an aerodynamic feel. It it had beeps at, at different G levels that uh, talked to you. Um, the weapon systems, again, are great. So, you know, your auto acquisition modes are out there. You get shoot lights that tell you, hey, you got somebody in a WES with the weapon that you've selected. Uh, so there's a lot of data that's coming in that enhances all of those things. Uh, and and you don't have to be looking inside at your instruments to do that. Um, so I think I think, uh, I think that's it. it. It is, yes. I guess the short answer to your question is yes. <laughs> it's, it's feel... Um, somewhat becomes uh, automated, and but you're never out of the uh, decision orient orient decide act loop. You're always doing that. So, so speaking of that, then speaking of Boyd um, and EM diagrams and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, obviously you're doing a lot of your dissimilars against F-16s, F-18s, um, yeah. you know, maybe Strike Eagles, because they, they are slightly different, um, yeah. Harriers, that kind of stuff. You know, how do you how do you build a picture in your mind then of what a flanker can do or what a fulcrum could do or any other kind of adversary aircraft? And, yeah. and, and how, you know, is it important that you know that um, so that if you did ever find yourself BFMing, a, a, you know, a fulcrum, you would have the right understanding as to what visual cues there are around energy states. So, you know, are the little louvers open on the, you know, on the index, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, the truth is in the C model, if I, if I had to do that, I might not have done my job right in the first place. Right. So, I mean, the real goal was not to get into, into the turning fight. And, uh, and one of the reasons the airplane was built the way it was and had so many great systems is so I could BVR kill people. 
Uh, and so really that wouldn't have to happen. But we always knew it did. And you had to be proficient at the BFM thing if you're going to survive the BFM thing. Um, and then you could, you know, I'm sure you've talked to guys who've been there, you know, uh, Rico talked about Rodriguez when he was basically BFM in a MIG, right? And he didn't, he didn't uh, necessarily expect to be there. Uh, but, but I think it, that's why it was important to do a lot of different airplanes because then you could know, like, for example, the, I liked BFM and Hornets because they were a lot like we thought they matched up in the EM diagram a lot to like a, a, a flank or a, uh, MiG-29. So, you know, they would, they had a lot, they had the well, MiG-29 actually had more power, but they, their nose array ability was like a lot like a Hornet. And so Hornet was way different than an Eagle when you're fighting them uh, because they just didn't have much power, but they had really good nose authority um, with the, uh, they could turn. Uh, so, so if I, if I was, so having a, the ability, I guess, to, to fly against a lot of different airplanes gives you the ability to assess a lot of different airplanes uh, quicker. And and then of course we had some of those red systems to go play against and actually get that practice. Uh, so that, that was an asset too. Um, not as much as we would like and not as often, but, uh, but, you know, you got an opportunity to fly against some of those um, out there in the real world. Uh, you know, especially like when you're deployed over to the Middle East, there's always somebody that's flying something that you've never flown against. Uh, so I did a lot of DACT and some BFM against Mirage 2000s, and uh, and then a lot of different, a lot of different Hornets from different countries. You know, the F-16s and the F-15s, yeah, they're pretty standard. We're used to them, but but when you got to go against somebody else, um, uh, I did I did some DACT against F-14s out there when we were. This is my second deployment to Bahrain in the in the uh, with the Wild Wars. We were at Sheikh Isa for a while, and uh, we did an internal link exercise while we were there too, uh, on top of all our combat flying. And that we we actually worked with the Bahrainis, and they had F5s and uh, F16s. And then also there was two carriers in the Gulf at the time, so we flew a bunch of F18s and F14 uh, dissimilar. And so again, just more airplanes, and you get to uh, experience it and and see the different ways they move. So, so yeah, you're right. I I, I don't know how you get it by unless you do it. Um, but the more you did, the more you, I guess, respected and kind of were able to pick it up quicker. Uh, because I don't know exactly what they're going to do, but that as soon as they make the first turn, I can say, oh, that's a lot like this one, and I know how to do it against that guy did, did you have um in your mind then sort of a, a library of of moves if you saw if you see this you're going to do that or is it much more dynamic than that it's... i think it's i think it's more dynamic than that um i mean there was obviously some set first moves right so when you do canned bfm at six thousand three thousand six thousand and nine thousand foot setups uh there's a first move uh, offensive Really, it's based on what the defender does, right? So if I'm the offender, I don't have a first move necessarily because if he doesn't do anything, I'll just shoot him. Right? I don't need a move if he doesn't do anything. So he's got to create a problem. Uh, and as soon as he starts to create a problem, then I have to figure out what's the solution to that problem. Um, and so I think that is, uh, that's kind of how you see it offensively. And again, if I do my job right, that's where I'm always going to end up being. Um, 
if I'm defensive, then yeah, you you know your first move is is turning your wet, turning your your tail, uh, get it away from his nose. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, that's important. And then after that, I got to see what he does. Everything everything's a reaction to the next maneuver. Um, so yeah, you can't you can't kind of do. Here's my first three moves. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can't because it, your second move depends on his first. So. Did you believe uh, as as a community then, uh, obviously you didn't train as a community for, for being able to kill everything BVR, but did you did you believe as a community that, that it would be BVR? I mean, when you say if, if I had to BFM somebody, i.e. I were close to them and we were maneuvering in relation to each other and, uh, you know, at close range, I'd have made a mistake. I wouldn't have done my job properly. You know, if you think about Vietnam, uh, right. ROE dictated by politicians. There was a BVR capability. Okay, the, mm-hmm. the AIM-7 wasn't great. It didn't work that well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in theory there was, but that was restricted by the ROE. Right. Rico Rodriguez's, Rodriguez's experience um, was just a pop-up threat. Um, right. You know, that happened, so that wasn't really because he hadn't done his job. No, exactly. So, so when, you, when you talk about that, is that just a, a mantra? Or, or, or you, as an Eagle community, do you did you think actually – we probably won't be able to kill all these people BVR. The numbers won't allow us to do everything BVR. Um, the fact they'll yes. have an electronic attack plan will probably mean we won't be able to do everything BVR. Um, what did it really amount to in, in your minds as to what, what a, a sort of a symmetrical threat would look like? Yes. Um, no, you're right. That's a, that's a really good question. So, yeah, I mean, I anticipated that we would get our, uh, a large amount of kills BVR. Um, however... We always anticipated we'd be, you know, overmatched, not not in capability, but in numbers. Um, and so even even in the Korea threat, you know, when you're over in Kadena and you're working the Korea threat, uh, are, they're going to have very ancient aircraft that have uh, the possibility of showing up behind you, right? So, um, so yeah, there's there's always there's always that, um, and ROE restriction, or yeah, you're not allowed to shoot them unless you get a VID. Um, but I guess when I say that I'm talking about full scale, right? So if, if you're, if you're in a, 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 the big one, I guess, uh, there, you're not going to be doing that. You, you know, you can't do that. Um, so when it's already restricted, when it's uh, limited, when you're, uh, in a place where there's tons of different assets and potentially even low tech assets, um, then yeah, that, that's something that you need to be ready for. And I would say the community wasn't wasn't not ready for that. I mean, that, that we trained that way every day, right? So we always took the BVR shots, uh, and especially if we were working with externals, you know, I could shoot everybody, and we still went to the merge. You know, we didn't call all the all the kills because you don't get any training. If if all I do is is call all the kills from my AIM one twenties. And and like okay well then just reset I guess because it's we're not going to get anything else but yeah you wanted to get in into it um, and so sometimes you took them out like at, at Red Flag is a good example at Red Flag I didn't do too many merges because the goal wasn't training it was war play, you know it was a war play so if I if I shot everybody BVR because it was in the ROE that was what we did and that's what I did I mean I flew like five. Uh, rides out there and only during the day ride did we do any uh, BFM and it was because we wanted to um, but every year every other red flag ride I had it all my shots would be there um, and I never merged um, 
not not in a close visual fight. I mean, maybe you got in visual, but not into a turning fight. You know, shot him before before we merged. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what you want. And and then once everybody's re- you know dead and they re come back out in a training scenario, yeah, then then they're in a different place, right? So so uh, that that's when things change. And you you might that might be kind of more realistic because you don't know where people are going to be coming from. Uh, and things just pop up like like uh, with uh, Rodriguez there, um, where somebody just ends up in your formation and you didn't know they were even around. Uh, that's when you know those skills need to be there, and uh, that's why we practice them all the time. And that's why I said that you know BFM was something that you could lose uh, good capability for, so you had to do that a lot. You know, just just shooting BBR, and you could just take sims right you don't even really need to fly you could just do it in the simulator uh and practice and you'd be proficient um but it's it matters once you get closer and uh and you have to do that turning fight and you always had to be ready for that so yes i i say that i would rather kill everybody before they got there and that was what we wanted to do um but we always were ready if that didn't happen I think, I mean, if, if you're agreeable, we'll, we'll do a third interview. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll never get out of this. It'll just be, uh, you'll have to stop responding to my emails. But but maybe what we could do, because we haven't talked about Kadini yet, and I'm really I'm really interested in hearing about that experience. I know you said that you were the sort of hired help, I think was your expression or something like that, but you were yeah. attached attached to the guys mm-hmm. at Kadina. Um, but I'm really interested in hearing about that. And I'm also really interested in hearing about your time as a T6 squadron commander. Okay. And one of the reasons I say that is because, you know, there's a, there's an ongoing conversation in, in particular around some of the recent class A mishaps. You know, there was an F-16 mm-hmm. and an F-15. I don't know if you read the, the yeah. reports. Both of yeah. those guys, young guys, um, maybe not well served um, by the right. Air Force's training um, system, perhaps. Um but it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that too. So um, would, would you agree to come back and talk to me again? Sure. Okay. okay. Sure.